If you want to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, uh, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. Uh, if you can choose your translation, uh, we're looking at the NIV, okay? Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. Uh, well, as you know, uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but uh, Revelation is a book that falls into a genre uh, known as apocalyptic literature. Okay, And we don't really have a modern day equivalent of it. But it's basically a genre that uses extremely vivid, uh, almost fantasy-like imagery to kind of pull back the curtain and allow us to see the world for what it really is. Because sometimes uh, you have to be taken out of your reality in order to see reality, right? Like, uh, it's like the Matrix. Uh, I, I'm like re really sad when I meet some of you young people at our church who, who have no idea what the Matrix is. One of the greatest movies of all time. But, uh, you know, it's hard to recognize, and you'll get this reference once you watch it, but it's hard to recognize you're in the matrix while you're in the matrix. Like, you have to be taken out of the matrix to be like, oh, like, that's what's happening, right? Uh, this is why movies like Get Out and Us are so compelling, right? Because on some level, they're horror movies, right, that we know aren't real, um, and yet we, we always leave feeling like we understand something about the world on a deeper, more profound level. And, and Jordan Peele, he uses this horror genre masterfully because he kind of creates these alternate realities to show us the hard truth about how the world actually works. And so you're going to see a lot of wild imagery in Revelation, uh, you know, and you're going to you're, you're going to see swords coming out of Jesus's mouth, his eyes blazing like fire. You're going to, you know, read about iron scepters and, and all of this stuff can feel kind of weird and unbelievable. But uh, keep in mind that all of this is actually being used to show us the world as it really is. Okay. Now, uh, today uh, we're looking at Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was the Roman imperial capital of the entire province of Asia. So uh, if there were a city that reeked of Rome, it was this one, right? It was a very political city, uh, a lot of official buildings. Think Washington, D.C. 
Um, it was the first city to build a temple dedicated to Caesar. So it kind of became the center of the imperial cult, uh, the center of nationalism and state-sponsored worship. And it's very interesting that twice in one verse, Jesus says, this is the city where Satan lives, right? If you listen to verse 13, it says, I know where you live, okay? Whenever Jesus says, I know where you live, that's a little scary, okay? That, uh, but he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Your city is where Satan lives, Right? Like we've seen Satan called the ruler of this world in other parts of the Bible. But here in Revelation 2, Jesus says, if you want to know where Satan lives, he lives in Pergamum. Okay, so we have to make that connection that Jesus is calling the center of Caesar worship, this city that was the embodiment of Roman values, the dwelling place of Satan. Okay? Now, uh, the first thing Jesus does, as he does in most of these letters, is opens with a commendation, right? He says, here's what you guys have done well. Uh, in spite of the fact that there's all this persecution happening around you, uh, you've stayed loyal to me. You didn't stop believing in me, even when you watched your brother in Christ, Antipas, be put to death right in front of your eyes. So Jesus says, I'm proud of you. You know, you still haven't renounced your faith in a time when it seems like everyone's renouncing their faith. Uh, you're still going to church. You're still following me amidst all this pressure. But then he brings down the hammer, right? Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so let me explain what's happening here. Who is Balaam? Who is Balak? Um, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find the story of Balaam and King Balak in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, okay? And Balaam is this pagan priest who's hired by King Balak to pronounce a curse on Israel. And, and King Balak is pissed because the Israelites are moving in on his territory. And so he calls Balaam in and he says, look, I I'll give you a huge reward uh, if you go and curse them, okay? And so Balaam sets out to do this, but every time he tries, God keeps stopping him, right? And, and soon he realizes he has no chance because the God of the universe is with the people of Israel. So he goes back to King Balak and he says, look, this isn't gonna work. You could give me all the money in the world. I'm, gonna be able to, I'm not gonna be able to lay a curse on these people because God has clearly blessed them, right? But he says, but I got a plan, Okay, and he, he says, I think we can backdoor this. And even though we can't directly curse Israel, I think there's a way we can make Israel curse themselves. And he says, the way we're going to do this is not by forcing their hand. The way we're going to do this is by enticing them into compromise. So let them keep worshiping their God. But then little by little, in subtle ways, we're going to lure them into sin and idolatry and let them essentially destroy themselves without even knowing it. Okay, so I want you to think about that. Basically, the plan was, let's allow them to keep thinking they're Christian. Don't take them away from the church. Make sure they still have Christian friends. But get them to compromise on small things. 
Get them to start buying into the promises of their culture. Get them to start listening to more to people than they do the word of God. You know, I think it's very interesting that the way Jesus introduces himself to this church, because Jesus always like opens every letter with some kind of introduction, and you have to pay attention to that. And here he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And then a few verses later, he says again, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay? So to the church that is compromising, he points them to the sword in his mouth. What is this double-edged sword? Well, in the New Testament, the sword almost always refers to the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so what does this mean? He's saying compromise begins when we begin to disregard God's Word as having ultimate authority over our lives. When we start to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we obey and which parts we ignore. And remember, the thing about compromise is that it's so subtle, Right? Uh, you know, we don't throw out the Bible altogether. We just throw out the parts we don't like, the parts that don't make sense, the parts that feel too restrictive, right? And this is what the Christians in Pergamum were doing. It says they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So back then, they would have these huge idol feasts, okay? So this was like their version of the club, okay? And, uh, these idol feasts would always turn into these massive orgies because the drinking always got way too out of hand, okay? And so if you were one of those people who said you weren't going to partake, uh, you were seen as being a prude. You were socially demoted. You lost your cool card, right? In fact, at that time, what was really big was this idea of liberating your body and doing anything that felt right. Right, that reference to the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans were basically a sex cult, okay? And they were all about sexual liberation, um, you know, experimenting with your bodies, breaking free of oppressive norms, right? And, and there were all these Christians who were like, you know, I don't think that stuff is that bad. Like, I still believe in Jesus. I still go to church. You know, I don't think it's a big deal if I dabble in a few things here and there. It's just a part of the culture. It's just a part of being in the industry. It's not like I'm hurting anyone, right? And this is where like people, all people become theologians and we love using Jesus because we all like know the parts in the Bible where like Jesus was always with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And we always bring that up, right? And that's true. But you see, we often use that as a license to make these small compromises of our faith that end up leading us down a dangerous road. Uh, you've probably heard the story of Thomas Jefferson's Bible, but uh, he was famous because he had this Bible and basically took his razor out and he, and he cut out all the parts of the Bible he didn't like. So he cut out most of the Old Testament. He even cut out the resurrection. So, I mean, I don't even know what he was reading. Um, and in the end, he got his Bible down to about 84 pages. Okay, very digestible uh, read, right? And he was like, you know what? I think I can live with these 84 pages. And though we might not do this literally, um, I would say all of us do this figuratively, right? 
They say if you agree with everything the Bible says, you've most likely created your own Bible. Um, Anne Lamott has this great quote where she says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do, right? And, and, and here's the scary thing about compromise. It isn't always obvious when we're compromising because sometimes we can honestly convince ourselves that we're pursuing the way of Jesus. Um, a, a pastor friend of mine told me this story about a parent uh, at his church uh, who came up to him and said, hey, pastor, um, you know, you always talk about in your sermons that, you know, that how much you care about the next generation. Uh, you want to put our children first. You know, I love that. I, I love that message. I, that's why I love this church. You know, would you be open to moving our worship services to another day? Because um, I've been talking to parents and, and they're all complaining that their kids can't do sports on Sundays because our service is right in the middle of the day. You know, I feel like um, this is one thing we can really do as a church to show people how much we care about our families and our children. And my friend was telling me, like, man, I had, I had to give him credit for, like, really spiritualizing that one, right? Because he, like, he was like, I almost started a Saturday evening service for them. And, and if you step back, is it wrong to want to make sure your kids have all the opportunities their friends have? Absolutely not. Like what parent out there wouldn't feel this way, you know? Uh, you know, I mean, like, well, if we're not careful, this is the, exactly the, but you see, this is how the enemy entices us into compromise, right? We say we're doing something for God, you know, um, but in the end, we're really doing it for ourselves. You know, I, uh, Asian parents are the masters of this, right? Um, you know, I want you to go out and make a lot of money for the Lord, you know, I want you to become really influential so you can bless even more people and do more things for God's glory, right? And, and I think so many of us like do this kind of stuff, you know, we, we kind of warp our thinking to this without even knowing it. You know, we don't renounce Jesus completely, but we start bringing in our own agenda little by little. And you can spiritualize anything, but in the end, the question is, what is it that your heart is really pursuing? And this is how the enemy will make believers curse themselves, right? He will convince you that you can love God and love money at the same time, though it's clear what the Bible says, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But I mean, again, is it bad to want to be comfortable? Is it bad to want my family to have nice things? No, of course not. But we need to wake up and see that it's not just the bad desires. It's sometimes the good ones that little by little begin to pull us away from the heart of God. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to give me full authority over your life? You can't have one foot in and one foot out. There's no such thing as partial obedience. If you're not going to give me all of you, you're giving me none of you. You know, and, and, and Jesus says, because I'm going to have something to say about everything. And, and, and Jesus is saying, and when I do say those things that you don't want to hear, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Um, you know, when I say things that don't make sense to you at the moment, will you trust me when you feel like when everyone else is doing something different, when the culture is telling you to live differently, or will you begin to compromise? Will you begin to trust the voices of your culture more than you do my word? Now, now here's the problem. 
Most of us don't even read our Bibles enough to even know what the Word of God says. Okay, and this is not uh, not to place judgment on anyone, but I would say, I've been saying this for a long time, I really do feel like biblical literacy is one of the biggest problems in the church right now. Um, Barna Group just did a study, and uh, they report that the average Christian millennial, okay, and so these are, and, and these are people who identify as strong Christians, uh, Barna reports that they consume 3,000 hours of digital content a year. 3,000 hours. And do you know how much of that content is explicitly Christian? 100. 100 out of 3,000 hours. This means that even those of us who say we are strong believers are getting 2,900 hours of digital content like that is implanting in us every day ideas that aren't necessarily scriptural. Think about that. And my guess is that a lot of this content isn't necessarily bad. But if we do not flip those scales, it doesn't take a mathematician to tell us what is ultimately going to win our hearts and our minds. Like I bet many of us on this Zoom chat can recite all the liberal and conservative talking points better than we can recite scripture. Imagine, though, if we immersed ourselves in scripture, in the words of God, even half the amount of time we immerse ourselves in social media. But you see, this is how the enemy is working in L.A. in 2021, through infographics, tweets, IG posts, little by little, convincing us to adopt habits of thinking that will in the long run have a devastating effect on our faith. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great book called The Screwtape Letters, um, and it's a book that's uh, written from the perspective of the devil, right? And basically, you have a senior demon, Uncle Screwtape, who is training his nephew, Wormwood, who's like a novice demon, and he's writing to him with the, these letters with specific instructions on how to make sure um, his human patient goes to hell. And in one of his letters, uh, Uncle Screwtape says this. He says, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without sound signposts. I want you to listen, think about that. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's often the smallest compromises that cumulatively move us away from the heart of God. Isn't it interesting that when the devil comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't tempt them to murder someone, right? Like you would think the first sin ever committed would be the most egregious one, right? Because if we're saying that every horrible thing that ever happened in the history of the world, the Holocaust, slavery emanated from that first sin, I mean, you would think that that sin would be really bad. And yet when you think about it, the first sin human beings ever committed was just a small compromise. It was the devil whispering in man's ear saying, I know that's what God said, but 
trust me, you won't die if you eat from that tree. You're just eating fruit. You're not hurting anyone. It looks good, feels good, tastes good. How could it be that bad? Right? And it was planting that small seed of doubt in the truth of God's word that ultimately created the most devastating ripple effect of sin and death that reverberates to this day. And so here in, in Revelation 2, Jesus is pleading with this church in Pergamum, and he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. If you can endure, if you can be faithful amidst all these temptations to compromise, I will give some of the hidden manna. And, and this is a reference to the Israelites in the wilderness after God rescued them from Egypt. And, you know, the Israelites are wandering around, they're starving and they're grumbling, and God sends them manna from the sky to feed them and satisfy their needs. And what Jesus is saying with this reference is that, look, I know trusting me can be scary. I know some of the things I say in my word don't make sense. I know they, you know, it, it, they just feel outdated. Uh, you know, they, they feel a little bit like too restrictive. Um, I know you're worried about your finances and you feel like you have to do some questionable things to make more money. Yeah, I know you really like that guy who keeps pressuring you to do things you don't really want to do and you feel like you're not going to be able to meet another guy if you lose him. And Jesus is saying, trust me. He's saying, if you give me full authority over your life, if you trust my word, I will provide you with everything you need. I will give you the hidden manna. Well, uh, obviously, this is easier said than done. How do we do this, right? How do we stand firm amidst a culture that is hostile to the way of Jesus? How do we not give in to the temptation to compromise? And the truth is, we can't. We will always be prone to compromise because we are sinful, broken human beings. And this means there's not one of us who could say at the end of our lives that we follow the word perfectly. It just can't be done. There's not one of us who could stand in the presence of the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth and not be destroyed by it. But here's the good news, friends. Jesus, who the Bible says was the very word of God, he became flesh and he lived his life perfectly according to the commands of God. Not once did he compromise. And he had a lot of opportunities to compromise. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says he's, he's about to die. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to do the hardest thing he's ever had to do. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. That's Jesus' that's plea saying, I haven't compromised on anything. Can I just make this one compromise? But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. I won't compromise that which I know I'm called to do. And you know what the irony of this story is? The only person who never compromised was the very person who had the sword of God's judgment thrust into his own heart. And because Christ willingly took the punishment we justly deserved, now when you and I open the words of Scripture and when you and I see this sword, we no longer see it as an instrument of violence we get to see it as an instrument of healing. The word of God still cuts us, but it cuts us now in the same way a surgeon cuts open a heart that needs surgery. 
That's amazing. Friends, today, let the word reveal the areas in our lives where we've compromised, where we've allowed our own desires or the voices of our culture to replace the words of God. And allow the word to reveal these things, not to condemn, not to condemn us, not to make us feel ashamed, but let the words of God invite us into healing and wholeness. Let the words of God invite us to entrust our lives into the care of our Heavenly Father who loves us deeply. A Father whose goal is not to restrict us, not to take away, but a God who wants to give, who wants to give generously, a God who wants to invite us to live a life of joy and peace and satisfaction. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning um, confessing that it's so easy uh, for our hearts to go astray. It's so easy for us uh, to compromise. It's so easy for us to take the parts out of your word and your commands that we don't like. It's so easy for us to allow our own agendas to begin to color your agenda. God, first we ask for forgiveness and we come to you in repentance. We know that living in a city like LA, in a city where we are swimming in the water of celebrity, wealth, uh, influence, and power, uh, these things that um, are values of this world, we know that it's so hard uh, to continue to stand firm in our faith. But God, we thank you for the life and death of Jesus, the life of Jesus who never compromised, who stood firm to the very end, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And so we cling to Jesus this morning and we ask that in him we would allow your words now to heal us, to bring us into a life of wholeness and freedom. We thank you for your constant grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you for this community. We pray that we would be a community shaped by the word, a community standing firm in a time where it is so difficult to follow you. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.